last year, I had to have a medically induced abortion. I finally conceived at about nine weeks of that conception. My baby no longer viable, no longer had a heartbeat. Thankfully, I had access to the abortion that I had. I later went on to be able to have a baby in February, and I now have a five-month-old son. Abortion is not always about wanting or not wanting to have a baby, because I wanted that baby in my... I wanted, I wanted that baby more than anything. The legal landscape around medication abortion already involved a patchwork of different state and local policies, but now it's more confusing than ever. Abortion was considered a constitutional right for nearly 50 years. Last month, that changed. Our special series, After Row, examines the legal, medical, and ethical landscape that millions of Americans are now living in. Today, we're looking at birth control and so-called abortion pills. According to the Guttmacher Institute, more than half of all abortions are medically induced through a two-pill regimen. They are not the same thing, but millions of Americans are worried about the future of both now that Roe's been overturned. We'll be back with more in just a moment. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join future conversations or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming, and many are burned out without even knowing it. Ongoing struggles in any of life's roles can lead to fatigue and feeling helpless. Prioritize yourself by talking with someone. BetterHelp Online Therapy offers video, phone, and live chat sessions with a professional therapist. Be matched with your therapist within 48 hours and get 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Let's jump into it. Here to help us out is Julie Rovner. She's the Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Julie, it's always great to have you on. Always great to be here, Jen. Also with us, Katie Watson. She's a lawyer and associate professor of Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also the author of Scarlet A, The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion. Professor Watson, it's great to have you with us. Hello, Jen. And Dr. Nisha Verma is a practicing OBGYN in Delaware and Georgia. She recently wrote the Society for Family Planning's latest guidance on self-managed abortion. Dr. Verma, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's start simple. Dr. Verma, what is a medication abortion? So a medication abortion um, uses medications to cause someone to pass the pregnancy, very similar to having a miscarriage. We actually use the same medications that we use for medication abortion for miscarriage management. So those medications that are most commonly used in the United States and are FDA approved for medication abortion management are mifepristone and mesoprostol. So the mifepristone is a medication that stops the pregnancy from growing and the mesoprostol is a medication that causes the person to have bleeding and cramping and pass the pregnancy at home. And when can you have a medication abortion? 
So we typically do medication abortions up until 11 weeks. The medication abortion regimen with mifepristone and misoprostol is approved in the United States by the FDA up until 10 weeks, but we have really, really great data that it works, that it um, has a very high effectiveness um, and low complication rates up until 11 weeks. And so in clinical practice, we do this regimen up until 11 weeks, between nine and 11 weeks. Weeks, um, we have people take an extra dose of that mesoprostol medication, but again, it can be very safely done up until 11 weeks of pregnancy. And can you just spell out the difference for us between a medication abortion and emergency contraception? Yes, so those are definitely very different. I think it's a really, really important distinction. Um, so emergency contraception will not affect a pregnancy that has implanted in the uterus. And that is how medically we define pregnancy as starting when the blastocyst or the fertilized egg implants in the uterus. Emergency contraception is not going to work if you take it after that happens. So emergency contraception is intended to be taken after an act of unprotected intercourse and most commonly delays ovulation or release of an egg so that fertilization cannot happen. Um, whereas medication abortion, those medications, that process is intended to end a pregnancy that has implanted in the uterus. So they're very different um, processes. We are seeing a lot of confusion right now where people are trying to restrict emergency contraception, saying that it is it acts as an abortion pill, which is not correct. Uh, Julie, how common are medication abortions? Well, we now know that medication abortions account for more than half of all abortions performed. We've known for, uh, you know, many, many years that most abortions are done earlier in pregnancy. Um, medication abortions are easier in many ways, and many women prefer them. Um, so it's not surprising that over time it's become more common um, that particularly in the early stages of pregnancy that women will be opting for medication abortion. And Dr. Furman, speak to the safety of medication abortion. And so we have over 20 years of incredibly strong data that show that medication abortion is safe and effective. So I often say the science on this is settled. The data is, is settled. We have incredibly strong data that medication abortion is safe and effective. And do they require a certain level of supervision? So we actually have seen um, during the COVID pandemic, we were able to get a lot more data on telehealth abortion um, and found that telehealth abortion where everything is done virtually and the medications are mailed to a patient um, is also just as safe and effective as having someone come into the office to get the medications. Um, and that actually patient satisfaction in many cases is higher because they don't have to um, take as much time off work, get into a clinic where they can get the medications, all of the extra burdens that come with that. We have also seen in the data that self-managed abortion or abortion um, with medications outside of the formal health care system can be safe and effective. Julie, what about the expense of a medication abortion compared to the cost of a non-medication abortion? Well, it it, it in general, is less expensive, but also it involves uh, fewer visits than often uh, uh, a 
surgical abortion, which in many states requires you to go and get counseling and then go back and get an ultrasound and then go back and get the procedure. Um, so overall, for you know, uh, women who have jobs uh, that they need to take time off of and other children that they need child care for, um, it ends up being considerably less expensive to have a medication abortion. Well, Professor Watson, as Dr. Verma said, the same pill regimen used for abortion can be used for managing miscarriages. If medication abortion is illegal, what does that mean for miscarriage treatment or any other treatment that involves these same medications? Well, because the statutes are aimed at ending a viable pregnancy, in theory, it should not limit the ability of physicians to use um, these medications for miscarriage management. In practice, it can have a real chilling effect on the practice of medicine for physicians either confused by the law or concerned that they could be unfairly targeted by the law. So, for example, as I believe the caller mentioned, um, there was a lack of a fetal or embryonic uh, heart cardiac activity in her case. There are cases in which the bag of waters, this is colloquially called, has broken, but there's still a fetal heartbeat. That's a miscarriage where there's no chance of delivering a baby in that pregnancy when it's before viability. But abortion bans could make it such that physicians either legitimately cannot or are afraid they cannot do standard of care medical management to prevent a woman from having an infection. And we're already seeing that in Texas with our experience with their six-week ban that maternal fetal medicine specialists are having to wait and being advised by hospital counsel to wait until a woman has a temperature or signs of an infection before they can do miscarriage management to not run afoul of the abortion statute, which is malpractice in any other context, but puts physicians in a horrible situation. Professor Watson, what what kind of ethical complications does, does this raise for people practicing medicine? Well, there's two that are paramount. The first is in informed decision-making for patients, we usually think about medical risks, benefits, and alternatives. But now physicians will have to think about legal risks and alternatives, and that's really not their area of counseling. So we'll see physicians referring patients to websites like If, When, How to figure out issues of legality. The second piece is the incredible crisis of conscience. In the past We've talked about conscientious objection or conscientious refusal, physicians being able to step away from care they disagree with. Here, physicians will be legally prevented from following their conscience in providing standard of care medical care, both in non-emergent situations where they think and correctly think that patient autonomy and dignity requires them to follow the patient's life path, but in emergent situations where they know the right medical thing to do and now have to choose between potentially going to jail and committing a felony. Um, and, And Dr. Verma said sometimes doctors are confused, and that's correct. Sometimes they're exactly correct about the law. The law is saying if you do the empty the uterus now, you've committed a felony, but they know their medical training is correct that if this is the right medical thing to do, that is an absolutely untenable crisis of conscience to put a physician in. Dr. Verma, you practice in both Georgia and Delaware, and I'm curious to hear how clinicians are reacting in both those states. 
Yeah, so currently um, in Georgia, we we can still do abortions up to 22 weeks. We do have a six-week ban that was passed in 2019 and is currently paused or enjoined in the court system, although the expectation is that it will likely go into effect um, in the coming months. And so we're having a lot of conversations on the ground about how to handle these situations, right? Like how to, when we know the right thing to do for a patient but can't do it in our state, how to get that patient connected with care. And we are having a lot of these conversations around like what to do when the law directly violates our ethical obligations to our patients. And to what extent does insurance currently cover medication abortions, Julie? Well, uh, it depends. In many states, uh, abortion is a required uh, uh, benefit, and in many states, abortion is banned in insurance coverage. Um, state Medicaid programs have been banned from providing any type of abortion uh, since the advent of the Hyde Amendment in the 1970s, but some states had used their own funds to pay for abortions. So it varies depending on what kind of insurance you have and what state you live in. Dr. Verma, do you need a prescription for medication abortion? You do currently to get the pills through the formal health care system. So currently, um, in order for a patient to go to their doctor and get the medication abortion medications, they do need a prescription. There are organizations that are providing these medications outside of the formal health care system, groups like Aid Access Plan C, And so those are also an option for people who are unable to get the medications within the formal health care system. And do you need to pick the pills up in person? No, they can be mailed to people. So, Professor Watson, since January, legislators in at least 20 states have proposed bills that would restrict or ban access to abortion pills. But realistically, how easy is it to police the mail? Well, it's difficult. And I think in this current administration, we will not see, uh, since that's a federal issue, policing of the mail. Um, I think it will be more an issue of personal privacy. Who else knows that you received these medications and knows that you took them? That is where the risk of confidentiality breaches comes and also how you ordered it. So I think we'll see people going to websites like abortionpillinfo.org to download um, apps that allow them digital privacy when they order these pills, like the Yuki app, um, where the data is stored on your phone rather than being put up into the cloud um, for people who want to keep the ordering process private. So there are things other than the mail that folks doing this in environments of illegality will want to pay attention to, I imagine. Julie, international nonprofit aid access says its sales of abortion medication drugs spiked more than 1,000% in the first week after Texas's abortion ban took effect last year. What role will international providers play in the months ahead? What are you watching? Well, we are. I mean, Canada, uh, it's obviously a place where people will want to go and may be able to, although Canada has limited opportunity for abortion for its own uh, citizens. This This is sort of the small issue of the bigger issue 
of importing other cheaper prescription drugs from Canada? Does Canada actually have the supply to supply the United States? Um, we did see, you know, and, and we should add another layer to this in states like Texas and Oklahoma that have these so-called bounty hunter laws where anyone who uh, finds someone who aids and abets in an abortion can then sue that person, not the woman, but anyone who's helped the woman uh, get an abortion, and that includes a medication abortion. Um, so we have seen women stocking up on both the abortion pill and emergency contraception in hopes of not getting pregnant and not being in the situation where they would need an abortion. Teresa emails, I have a 13-year-old daughter. We live in Texas. Should we stockpile a dose of the necessary medication? How long is the shelf life? And Dr. Verma, we should say internet searches for medication abortion jumped 162% after Roe was struck down. What happens if someone tries to stockpile abortion pills? Can they expire? So they can expire after some time, but mesoprostol, these medications do have, they do have long shelf lives. And so, um, you know, it is something we are seeing that people are stockpiling both the the, um, medication, abortion medications and emergency contraception. Um, And, you know, that is, it is something to think about. I um, also have seen a lot of people coming in for birth control. um, So making sure that they're having effective methods of birth control. And that's also something that people can think about. I do want to be very clear, though, when I say that, that birth control is never going to be a replacement for abortion. So it's important for people to have access to whatever birth control method that they want and need um, to be able to access effective birth control, but that's never going to remove the need for abortion. And what health risks are associated with taking an expired pill, expired medication? The biggest thing we worry about in these situations with these medications is that it just won't work as well. So I don't expect there to be, you know, significant negative health risks outside of it just might not do what it's supposed to do, which which could be pretty significant when you're trying to prevent a pregnancy, but it's not going to cause harm to someone's body. Professor Watson, returning to the the legal landscape, can someone in a state where abortion is banned be arrested for having these pills in their possession? That will be answered state by state in the um, chaos of the next year or two as these statutes unfold, as they are amended, and as they are applied and enforced by local prosecutors. So I regret that I can't give you a very clear answer. Um, It's possible. So far, the Statutes are being written to criminalize the physicians and the aiders and abettors, those who might, the the boyfriend or mother or friend who might help you get the medication or the procedural abortion. Um, It is possible that holding on to the medication could be criminalized or charged under existing statutes, such as um, having a prescription medication without a prescription. So where there's a will, there's often a creative way that prosecutors find. And is it clear whether a provider could be prosecuted for prescribing these pills to someone who lives in a state where abortion is legal? Well, it depends where the the provider lives. So if the provider provider lives in a state where abortion has Mm -hmm. been banned... But they, they write a prescription for someone who lives in a state where abortion is legal. Can that provider mm-hmm. be criminalized for that? It's, um, it's possible. 
Um, and again, it would be a state-by-state -state review. There's also issues with prescribing drugs for people out of the state in which you practice. So then we get into the laws just generally of that govern um, physician prescribing and treating folks outside of your the state where you're licensed. Yeah. And, and so there is incredible complexity here. Now, Julie, Politico reports that the generic manufacturer of one of these abortion medications plans to sue over bans on its use. Legally speaking, does FDA approval trump state-led efforts to limit access to any specific drug? Is it clear? Well, according to the Justice Department, it's clear. And we've seen uh, sort of dry runs of this. Um, Massachusetts tried to ban a particular opioid uh, some years ago and basically was told, no, if the FDA says that it's safe and effective, then you can't ban it. Um, although, as we've seen, we have how many nine states that theoretically have bans in effect right now. So this is yet another thing that's going to be fought out. But it's one of the few things the Biden administration has said it will do is ensure that uh, the abortion pill is uh, available because the FDA has approved it. Coming up, we pivot to the post-Roe impact on emergency contraception. We'll be back with more in just a moment. And remember to have your questions answered on future conversations. Download our 1A Fox Pop app and leave us a message. Now let's get back to our conversation on reproductive health. I'm going to shift to birth control in just a moment. But first, we got this question. If you're doing a medication abortion at home, who can you call for help if you're concerned? My understanding is that it can be super unpleasant. Are there any hotlines? Dr. Verma, first, briefly, if you are self-managing an abortion, what should you expect? Yeah, so self-managing an abortion with medications, with mifepristone or mesoprostol, either the combination or just mesoprostol, is a very similar process to when you get the medications from your doctor's office. It's really just where you're getting the medication from is the main difference. But even when someone comes to me um, in one of my clinics for a medication abortion, I give them the pills and they do the process at home. So the process itself is very similar. People can expect heavy bleeding, cramping. Um, they'll pass the pregnancy at home. And then usually that heavy bleeding gets better within 24 hours. There are definitely hotlines that exist um, to help people that are self-managing um, with questions that may come up. One is the miscarriage and abortion hotline um, or the mahotline.org is the website. Um, so that's one resource that exists. It is also important that people are able to come into the hospital if they're having major complications or things they're concerned about. Again, those complications are super, super rare, but nothing is 100%. And so people can come into the the emergency room, the clinic, there are important legal risks to be aware of for people that are self-managing that are then coming to the formal healthcare system. And so, so those are things that there are the hotline if, when, how can help with to think through some of the, the legal risks. We do, we did release um, some guidance on self-managed abortion through the Society of Family Planning, which is also publicly available and lists some legal risks, some um, hotlines and information, um, information about the process. So that can also be a helpful resource. Let's shift now to contraception. Professor Watson, right now, do any trigger laws banning abortion also ban any form of contraception? 
Not to my knowledge, and this is a confusing area of the Supreme Court's opinion. The majority claims that its decision reversing Roche would, will not affect the precedents protecting contraception. However, as the minority opinion points out, um, those contraception decisions is where the privacy doctrine was developed. And this idea that American citizens should be free of governmental interference into decisions so fundamental as whether to bear or beget a child. The question in Roe was, does the presence of an embryo or fetus change that? And the Roe court said no. The Dobbs court said, oh gosh, the, the, the presence of an embryo or fetus changes everything, and that's why it should go back to the states. Um, so at the moment, the answer is no. Again, the chilling effect and the ambitious legislators and prosecutors cannot be ruled out, um, as well as future court interpretations. Julie, some legal experts are also worried about the future of IUDs. Just briefly explain what is an IUD. An IUD is an intrauterine device. It's one. It's a called a, a long-acting uh, contraceptive method, uh, extremely effective. But you know the the issue here is where these things start to cross is what is considered an abortion. Um, an abort. You know, medically, a pregnancy begins after implantation. The problem is you have let many many state lawmakers anti-abortion activists who say that life begins at fertilization. That's well before implantation. And the question is for these contraceptives that work between fertilization and implantation. Julie, at least a dozen states already allow healthcare providers to deny patients contraception. That's uh, contraception. Uh, that's according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is a reproductive rights policy organization. What do we know about the state of contraception access right now? Uh, well, it's generally available. Um, you know, we've seen fights in many of these states. It's not just uh, healthcare providers themselves who are allowed to exercise their their rights to say, "I will not prescribe this type of birth control because I believe that it can act as a very early abortion." But also pharmacists in filling prescriptions. Um, we saw that when when Plan B was still a prescription medication, Plan B is now over the counter. Uh, but there's another form of emergency contraception. Uh, that that is still uh, by prescription. It's called Ella. Um, so, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, as as the doctor points out, this not be, this may not be medically accurate, but it, it's a religious belief, and these states want to make sure that people can uh, apply their own religious beliefs, which adds to the confusion even more. Professor Watson, the Supreme Court's majority opinion on the Dobbs decision, again, it doesn't cover contraception, but in a separate explanation of the decision, Justice Clarence Thomas called for revisiting Griswold v. Connecticut. And this is a decision which protects access to contraception. What was Justice Thomas's reasoning? Well, I think that the reasoning there is really the debate over morality laws. Um, Justice Thomas would say it's because the the he disagrees with the privacy doctrine. He thinks that um, because the framers, just to put it very simply, the framers weren't talking about contraception. Um, contraception wasn't on the minds of folks in the, um, ratifying the 14th Amendment in 1868, so therefore it's not covered by the Constitution. Um, that is just an incredible level of granularity that turns the Constitution into a grocery list rather than a statement of principles meant to last over his historical and cultural change. But that is the legal and political debate we are now having. 
um, which is essentially there was a there was a move in the '60s and '70s in constitutional law to say generally in the area of sexuality, family creation, um, and such that these morality laws really don't have a legitimate governmental purpose. And we saw that through the gay rights cases, um, that extension. And Thomas is calling for that repeal to say that this should be a matter of majoritarian rule and a sort of quote-unquote public morality rather than in a pluralistic country as almost an extension of our um, religious freedom to say those will be issues of individual conscience and personal family decisions so we can have pluralism. Uh, Dr. Verma, when we look at this this current legal landscape, I, I think it's important to understand how well most Americans understand issues surrounding reproductive health in, in general. What's your sense of that? I mean, I think that my patients understand their lives and their needs and how reproductive health fits into their lives. And so I do definitely trust my patients to, you know, my my role as the doctor is to provide them with information about the birth control methods, about abortion methods, about continuing a pregnancy, provide them with medical information, which I do think um, some people need that medical information, um, but people understand how to apply that to their own reproductive health care. And I think it's really important that we give people that power and trust them to do that. Because I see every day, like my patients know how to make their reproductive decisions. Are, are you concerned by the disconnect you're seeing in the medical practice of reproductive health and the way some of the laws we've seen in recent months, how those laws are being written. Absolutely. I mean, these laws that are, they're being written, again, by people that don't understand what the practice of medicine looks like. They're people that have never taken care of someone who needs an abortion. Um, They don't understand how these laws actually impact the practice of medicine. And we're seeing that on the ground. We're seeing that these black and white laws, um, they're, they're trying to apply them to the practice of medicine, which is complicated, which is often in a gray area, which is nuanced, and it just doesn't work. So I'm curious to hear from, from each of you as we wrap up in this final minute, what you're watching most closely in, in the weeks and months ahead. Professor Watson, I'll come to you first. I'm watching in the States uh, how many people who uh, support abortion access but have been quiet about it because they think it's too controversial of an issue for them to get involved with realize it's time for them to stand up before their fundamental rights are taken away or further stripped by their state legislatures. Um, As we just heard, sometimes these laws are based on a misunderstanding of medicine, but sometimes it's not about the medicine. It is a pronatalist view of women's roles in society. And so we are having a major reckoning about women's roles in society. These votes are not about necessarily embryos and fetuses. They're about women's control over reproduction and whether they get to decide the role it plays in their lives. Julie, briefly? Uh, I'm just looking at how this is going to play out across state lines and between the states and the federal government. There's so much that's still unknown and that's going to have to be explored legally. And Dr. Verma, very briefly from you. I'm really 
just focused on how we can keep getting people connected with the care they need, whether that's in our states or in other states. That's Dr. Nisha Verma. She's a practicing OBGYN with a specialty in complex family planning. She recently wrote the Society for Family Planning's latest guidance on self-managed abortion. Also with us today, Julie Rovner, the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News, and Katie Watson, a lawyer and an associate professor at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also the author of Scarlet A, The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Paige Osborne. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.